Chapter 14 of Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cassiopeia Sparks. Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy, by Ruth Putnam. Chapter 14 English Affairs, 1470 through 1471. In order to follow out the extension of Burgundian jurisdiction in one direction, the course of events in the Duke's life has been anticipated a little. The thread of the story now returns to 1469, when Charles and Sigismund separated at St. Omer, both well pleased with their bargain. Charles tarried for a time at Ghent and Bruges, and then proceeded to Zealand and Holland, where his sojourn had been interrupted in 1468, by his alarm about French duplicity, in the glow caused by his past achievements, his present reputation, and future prospects, Charles of Burgundy was in a mood to prove to his subjects his excellence as a paternal ruler. Wherever he paused on his journey, easy access was permitted to his presence, and he was lavish in the time given to receiving petitions from the humblest plaintiff. The following gruesome incident is an illustration of the summary methods attributed to him. Shortly before the ducal visit to Middleburg, the governor, a man of noble birth, a knight, fell in love with a married woman who indignantly repudiated his advances. In revenge, the governor had the husband arrested on a charge of high treason. The wife, left without a protector, continued obdurate to the knight until the alternative of her husband's release or his death was offered her as the reward for accepting the governor's base suit or as the penalty of her refusal. She chose to redeem the prisoner. Having paid the price, she went to the prison and was led to her husband truly, but he lay dead and in his coffin. When the Duke of Burgundy was once within the Zealand capital, this injured woman hastened to throw herself at his feet a petitioner for justice. He heard her complaint and straightway summoned the ex-governor to his presence. The accused confessed that he had been carried away by his adoration for the woman, reminded Charles of his long and faithful devotion to the late duke and to himself, and offered any possible reparation for his crime. The duke ordered him to marry his victim. The widow was horrified at the suggestion, but was forced by her family to accept it. After the nuptial benediction, the knight again appeared before Charles to assure him that the plaintiff was satisfied. She, yes, replied the duke coldly, but not I. He remanded the bridegroom to prison, had him shriven and executed all within an hour. Then the bride was summoned and shown her second husband in his coffin, as she had seen her first, and on the same spot. It was a penalty that hit the innocent as well as the guilty for the plaintiff died from a double shock. The duke, satisfied with his rigor, went on to Holland. Everywhere he evinced himself equally uncompromising towards the nobles, amiable and considerate towards the lower classes and humble folk. Various other stories related about him at this epoch are difficult to accept as authentic, for the main detail has appeared at other times under different guises. Wandering tales seem to alight, like birds of passage, on successive people in lands and epochs widely apart, mere hallmarks of certain characteristics re-embodied. The Hague was the Duke's headquarters during two months, and there also he held open court and gave audience to many embassies 
in the midst of his administrative work pertaining to Holland and its nearest neighbors. He took measures to recover what he claimed had been usurped by Utrecht, and he initiated proceedings to make good the title of Lord of Friesland, that will-o'-the-wisp to successive counts of Holland, and never acknowledged by the Frisian. In efforts to weld together the various provinces, the months passed until a new turn of foreign events began to absorb the duke's whole attention. The details of English politics, with all the reasons for revolution and counter-revolution, involved in the complicated civil disorders, the Wars of the Roses, affected Charles' policy, but they can only be suggested in his biography. It must be remembered that the modern impression of English stability and French fickleness in political institutions, an impression casting reflections direct and indirect upon literature as well as history, is based on the changes in France from 1789 down to the fourth quarter of the 19th century. Quite the reverse is the earlier tradition, based on the kaleidoscopic shifts familiar to several generations of observers in the 15th century. Stable and firm felt the French as they heard the tidings of the brief triumphs of belligerent factions across the Channel. Since 1461, Henry VI of the House of Lancaster had been a passive prisoner, while Margaret of Anjou had exhausted herself in efforts to win adherents at home and abroad for her captive husband and her exiled son. In 1463, she had received some aid, some encouragement from Philip of Burgundy. Although he had recognized Edward IV as king, and although, too, his personal sympathies were Yorkish rather than Lancastrian, it was Charles who escorted the errant lady into Lille, but later the duke himself entertained her munificently. The poverty-stricken exile probably found the accompanying ducal gifts more to the immediate purpose than the ducal feasts. Two thousand gold crowns were bestowed upon herself, a hundred upon each of her ladies, while various Lancastrian nobles were tided over hard times by useful sums of money. Pleasant though the recognition was, however, the pecuniary assistance was quite insufficient to accomplish Margaret's purpose. For nine years, Edward the Fourth sat on his throne, and no serious efforts were made to dislodge him. As he never forgot his mother's lineage, the sympathies of Charles of Burgundy were with the exiles, and Queen Margaret may have counted confidently on that sympathy proving valuable for her son, as soon as Charles himself had a free hand. But when he came into his heritage, his marriage with Margaret of York put a definite end to those hopes. The new duke thereby declared his acceptance of the king, whom the Earl of Warwick had seated upon the English throne. Then came clashing of wills between that king and his too powerful subject adviser. To punish his unruly royal protégé, Warwick turned his attention to the Duke of Clarence, brother and heir presumptive to Edward IV. A marriage was planned between this possible future monarch and the Earl's eldest daughter, and then quickly celebrated at Calais without the king's knowledge, July 1469. In the same summer occurred a rising in Yorkshire, possibly instigated by Warwick. The malcontents, 60,000 strong, declared that the king was giving ear to base counsellors and must be coerced into better ways. An attempt to suppress this revolt by the royal troops resulted in a pitched battle where Earl Rivers, the father of Elizabeth Woodville, the young queen, was taken prisoner and beheaded. Edward, baffled, finally turned for aid to Warwick. Over the channel hastened the earl and his new son-in-law, levied troops, met the king at Olney, 
and Edward found himself, if not exactly a prisoner, at least under restraint. Two sovereigns, both without power even over their own actions. Such was the situation in England at the end of 1469, when Charles of Burgundy was self-complacently regarding Louis XI as a foe convinced of his own inferiority. A menacing letter from this redoubtable ducal brother-in-law was probably the reason why Edward IV was set at liberty, and why a reconciliation was patched up between him and his counsellor, with full pardon for Warwick's adherents. But it was short-lived. A fresh outbreak in March 1470 made another change. Warwick and Clarence sided with the rebels, the king was victorious, and his unfaithful friend and brother were again forced to flee under a shower of menaces hurled after them. But, and he, Clarence, or Richard Earl of Warwick, our rebel and traitor, come into our said land, we will, that ye do him and them to be arrested. He that taketh and bringeth unto us either of them, he shall have for his reward C.L. of land, in yearly value to him and to his heirs, or mill lib in ready money at his election. Such was the proclamation issued on March 22nd by the king himself at York. Between Edward and Charles, a new link had just been forged in the chain of friendship. The Order of the Garter is thus acknowledged by the Duke. We have today received from our much-honoured signor and brother, the King of England, his Order of the Garter, together with the mantle and other ornaments and things appertaining to the said order, and have taken the oath according to the statutes of the order, done in our city of Ghent under our grand seal, February 4th, 1469, O.S. Now it was in consideration of needs that might arise in the near future, following on the trail of these wide-reaching English convulsions, that Charles felt it necessary to make preparations for a strong military defense calculated to suit any emergency. Louis XI had a permanent force at his command. He had made the beginning of the French standing army, the nucleus of one of those bodies that have ever since urged each other on to expensive growth from opposite sides of European frontiers. What one monarch possessed, that must his near neighbor have. Feudal service, volunteer militia, paid mercenaries, were all alike unstable bulwarks for a nation. Nation as yet Charles had not, but he wanted to be betimes with his bulwarks. This was why he issued an ordinance for the levy of a thousand lances, amounting to five thousand combatants, to be paid with regular wages and kept ready at call under officers of his own appointment. The ducal treasury could not stand the whole expense. To meet the deficit, Charles asked from his Netherland estates an annual subsidy of 120,000 crowns for three years, power to impose taxes he had none. A request to each individual province was all the requisition that he could make. In this case, most of the provinces approached had acceded to the demand when the estates of Flanders convened at Lille. Here the Chancellor of Burgundy expounded to them the grounds of the demand, and then the session was changed to Bruges, where they debated on the merits of the request, urged on further by explanatory letters from Charles. Finally, a deputation was appointed by the estates to go over to Ghent and present a remonstrance to their impatient sovereign beggar. Three points were set forth. 
the deputies objected to this grant being asked only from the lands du pas de sa the netherlands and not from the burgundies secondly they wished a definite assessment imposed on each province thirdly they desired a declaration that the fiefs and arrière-fiefs already bound to furnish troops should be exempt from share in this tax the remonstrance was courtly in tone written in french the concluding phrases were in latin and suggested that nothing was more becoming a prince than clemency especially towards his subjects vigorous and emphatic was the prince's response how could burgundy furnish money it is a poor land it takes after france but its men make a third of the army they are the burgundian contribution as to an assessment what is the use unless the tax is surely to be paid only out of malice is this idle point suggested you act as you have always done you flemings neither to my father nor to me have you ever been liberal what you have granted sometimes more than our request has always been given so tardily as to prove the lack of good will your flemish skulls are hard and thick and you cling to your stubborn and perverse opinions i am half of france and half of portugal and i know how to meet such heads as yours i and will do it you have always either hated or despised your prince if powerful you hated if weak you despised i prefer your hatred to your contempt not for your privileges or anything else will i permit myself to be trampled on and i have the power to prevent such trampling laying stress on the extreme modesty of his demand whose purpose mainly was for defence of flanders the duke proceeded to berate his visitors soundly for their presumptuous haggling declaring that as to the fiefs and arrière-fiefs he would see to it that no double burdens were borne and when you shall have determined to accord my request which you will assuredly do and i do not mean to burden you further unless i am forced to it send some of your deputies after me to lille or st omer and there with my chancellor and my council i will determine the apportionment and we will speak also of other matters touching my province of flanders it was this vehement oratory and this vehemence was repeated on many occasions that did more to alienate charles from his hereditary subjects than his actual demands there is little doubt that his period of residence in their midst brought with it hatred rather than liking no political error of his serves to explain the flemish attitude towards the duke as does his method of address the gratuitous contempt displayed towards burghers whose purses were needed for his gain the aid was granted indeed but it was levied with sullen reluctance what cause charles had to make his preparations what were the proceedings of the english exiles may be seen from the following letters to his mother and to the town of ypres the first is probably an answer to her questionings the second is a specimen of the epistles showered upon the border towns to my very redoubtable lady and mother madame the duchess at air may it please you to know that in regard to what the seigneure de cruvigueur has written you about the king's proclamations that he intends to maintain his treaties and promises to me etc and has no desire to sustain the earl of warwick and wishes my subjects to be reimbursed for the damages inflicted by him and his assuredly my lady and mother the contrary has been and is well known before the said publications 
end after. The Earl of Warwick is my foe, and could not, according to the treaty existing between the king and me, be received in Normandy or elsewhere in the realm. Complaints about the procedure have been sent to king and parliament and councillors without redress, etc. What is more, the Admiral of France has sent thither a spy under pretext of carrying a letter to Signore de la Grutus, which man was charged to spy upon my ships, and by means of a caravel named the Brunette, sent for this purpose by the Admiral, to cut the cables, to set them adrift and founder, or to capture certain ships with such captains, knights, and gentlemen as he could find, and myself too, if they were able. Furthermore, the said spy was charged to spy on my towns, etc., and those of the caravel called the Brunette were charged, if they failed in taking my ships, or in cutting their cables, to set fire to them, all in direct conflict with the terms of the treaties, and procedures that the king would never have tolerated had he had the slightest intention of maintaining his word. Charles does not consider Grutus to blame at all, etc. Letter from Charles of Burgundy to the Magistrates of Ypres, June tenth, fourteen seventy. Dear friends, it has come to your knowledge how after the Duke of Clarence and the Earl of Warwick were expelled from England on account of their sedition and their ill deeds, they have declared themselves, both by words and deeds of aggression, our enemies, and on vendredi absolute, when so far as to capture by fraud ships and property belonging to our subjects, and have further done damage whenever opportunity presented itself. In order to repel them, we have ordered them to be attacked on the sea. Moreover, at the same time, we were advised that the same Clarence and Warwick and their people, after they were routed at sea by the troops of my honored lord and brother, Edward, King of England, retreated to the marches of Normandy, and were honorably received at Enfleur by the Admiral of France, with all which they had saved from the raid on our subjects after the defeat. All this was direct infringement of the treaties lately made between Monseigneur the King and myself. Therefore we wrote at once to Monseigneur the King, begging him not to favor or aid the said Clarence and Warwick in his land of Normandy, or elsewhere in his realm, nor to permit them to sell or distribute the property of our subjects, and to show his will by publishing such prohibitions throughout Normandy and elsewhere where need is. Also, we wrote to the court of Parliament at Paris, and to the council of my said seigneur at Rouen. The answer was that the king meant to keep the treaty between him and us, and had ordered his subjects in Normandy not to retain the property belonging to our subjects. But we have since learned that, notwithstanding, this same property has been distributed, and ransoms have been negotiated in the sight and knowledge of the admiral of france and his officers moreover it is perfectly evident that by means of the aid furnished by the king to the said clarence and warwick the latter are enabled to continue the war on our subjects and not on the english it being understood that they who were banished from england are not strong enough to return by the force of arms but must do so by friendship and favor on account of the above and other depredations, we shall attack the said Warwick and Clarence on the sea as pirates, 
and all who aid them as is needful for the protection of our lands and subjects. Written at Middleburg in Zealand, June twentieth, 1470. Tell Monsieur de Warwick that the king will assist him to recover England either with the help of Queen Margaret or by whatever other means he may propose. Only let him communicate his desires in this respect as speedily as possible, and the king will lay aside all other affairs for the purpose of accomplishing it, wrote the complacent king of France in his directions to the confidential messenger sent to discuss matters with the English earl. But that was not his language towards his cousin of Burgundy, whom he assured that there should be no infringement of their treaty, and that it was greatly to his royal displeasure that Flemish property captured at sea in defiance of that treaty should be sold in French marketplaces. There is a hot correspondence, that is, it is hot on the side of Charles, while Louis' phrases are smoothly surprised at there being any cause for dissatisfaction. The circumstances shall be investigated, his cousin satisfied, etc. One letter from the Duke to two of Louis' council is emphatic in its expressions of doubt as to the good faith of these royal statements. Archbishop and you, Admiral, the vessels which you assure me are destined by the king for an attack on England, have attempted nothing except against my subjects, but by St. George, if some redress be not seen to, I will take the matter into my own hands without waiting for your motions, tardy and dilatory as they are. Reprisals were made accordingly, and the innocent French merchants, coming peaceably to the fair at Antwerp, suffered confiscation of their private property, while the Duke felt fully justified in stationing his fleet off the coast of Normandy to guard the channel. Philippe de Comines was one of the company who went at the Duke's behest to Calais to urge the governor, Wenlock, to be faithful to King Edward and to give no shelter to the rebellious Earl and his protégé Clarence louis feared an outbreak of hostilities at an inconvenient moment he temporized to warwick he denied a personal interview but at the same time he sent him a confidential emissary signor du plessis to whom he wrote as follows monsieur de plessis you know the desire i have for warwick's return to england as well because i wish to see him get the better of his enemies or that at least through him the realm of england may be embroiled as to avoid the questions which have arisen out of his sojourn here for you know that these britons and burgundians have no other aim than to find a pretext for rupturing peace and reopening the war which i do not wish to see commenced under this colour wherefore i pray you take pains you and others there to induce monsieur de warwick to depart by all arguments possible pray use the sweetest methods that you can so that he shall not suspect that we are thinking of anything else but his personal advantage to gain time was louis's ardent wish at that moment the envoys sent by louis to placate the duke's resentment at the incidents in connection with the warwick affair and to assure him that louis meant well by him and his subjects found charles holding high state at st omer when they were admitted to audience the duke was discovered sitting on a lofty throne, five feet above floor level, higher than was the wont of king or emperor to sit. His hat remained on his head as the representatives of his feudal overlord bowed to him, and he acknowledged their obeisance by a slight nod 
and a gesture permitting them to rise hugonet a member of the ducal council answered their address with a prosy speech burgundian officials revelled in grandiloquent phrases which this time bored charles he cut short the harangue impatiently took the floor himself and made a statement of the injuries he had suffered louis had promised to be his friend but he was aiding the foe of the duke's brother the envoys repeated their sovereign's offers of redress charles declared that redress was impossible pained very pained were the french envoys to think that a petty dispute could not be settled amicably the king desires to avoid friction he offers you friendship peace and redress for every wrong it will not be his fault if trouble ensue monseigneur the king and you have a judge who is above you both the insinuation that it was he who was ready to break the peace infuriated charles he started to his feet his eyes flashing with fire among us portuguese there is a custom that when our friends become friends to our foes we send them to the hundred thousand devils of hell a piece of bad taste to send by implication a king of france to a hundred thousand devils comments the slav chatelaine aghast at this impolite emphatic though indirect reference to louis the eleventh equally aghast were the burgundian courtiers present at this occasion after all they too were french by nature to wreck the new-made peace for the sake of the english alliance which had never been really popular among them that seemed an act of rash unwisdom a murmur went the rounds of the ducal suite because their chief thus implied contempt for the name of france to which the duke belonged not going quite so far as to call himself english though that was what his heart was he boasted of his mother ancient friend of england and enemy of france there were indeed times when the duke was more emphatic in asserting his english blood plancher cites a scrap of writing in his own hands which probably belonged to a letter to the magistrates and citizens of calais whom he addresses o oh, you my friends while reiterating that he simply must defend his own state he adds by saint george who knows me to be a better englishman and more anxious for the weal of england than you other english you shall recognize that i am sprung from the blood of lancaster etc his claims of kinship varied with the circumstances while he was so conscious of his own greatness present and future and of his own laudable intentions to do well by his subjects it is quite possible too that charles was puzzled more or less consciously by his failure to win popularity for he was quite as unpopular with his courtiers as with his subjects the former did not like the rigid court rules there was no pleasure in sitting through audiences stiff and silent as at a sermon and exposed to personal reprimands from their chief if there were the slightest lapses from his standard of conduct they did not know on what meat the duke was feeding his imagination an imagination that already saw him as caesar had he actually attained the loftier rank that he dreamed of his premature arrogance might have been forgotten but his pride of glory invisible to the world about him was undoubtedly a bar to his popularity during the years fourteen seventy through seventy three before this pompous scene passed at st omer louis had been relieved of anxiety in regard to the stability of his kingdom and the dangers of an heir like his brother who might easily be used as a tool by some clever faction 
opposed to the ruling monarch. On June 10th, a son was born to him, afterwards Charles VIII of France. Complacent still were his words to his Burgundian cousin, but the moment was drawing near when his efforts to circumvent him were no longer secret. The embassy returned home. Possibly the report of the duke's passionate words goaded the king into discarding his mask of friendship. At any rate, his next steps were unequivocal in showing which side of the fresh English quarrel he meant to espouse. Margaret of Anjou hated the Earl of Warwick, not only because he had unseated her husband, but because he had doubted her fidelity to that husband. Nevertheless, under Louis's persuasions, she consented to forget her past wrongs and to stake her future hopes on fraternizing with him on a basis of common hate for Edward the Fourth. The alliance was to be sealed by the marriage of young Edward of Lancaster, the prince whose very legitimacy Warwick had questioned, with the earl's younger daughter. It was a singular union to be accepted by the parents, separated as they had been by the wall of insults interchanged during more than a decade of bitter enmity. Louis brought his cousin to this step of concession. She saw her seventeen-year-old son betrothed to the sixteen-year-old Anne Neville, and later she herself swore reconciliation to Warwick on a piece of the true cross in St. Mary's Church at Angers, August 4, 1470. Monsieur du Plessis, wrote Louis XI on July 25th, I have sent you Monsieur Yvon Dufour to put the affairs of Monsieur de Warwick in surety, and I order him to make such arrangements that the people of the said Monsieur de Warwick will suffer no necessity until he is there. Today we have made the marriage of the Queen of England and of him, and hope tomorrow to have all in readiness to depart. Meanwhile, the king kept agents in all the Somme towns, insinuating opposition to the duke, and reminding the citizens that they were French at heart. His ambassadors passed in and out of the Burgundian court, saying many things in secret besides those they said in public. Plenty there were that wished for war, remarks the observant Comine. Nobles like St. Paul and others could not maintain the same state in peace as in war, and state they loved. In time of war, four hundred lances attended the constable, and he had a large allowance to maintain them from which he reaped many a profitable commission besides the fees of his office and his other emoluments. Moreover, adds Comine, the nobles were accustomed to say among themselves that if there were no battles without there would be quarrels within the realm the matter of the grants to charles of france had been settled to his royal brother's liking not to that of his burgundian ally champagne and brie so cheerfully promised at peronne were withdrawn and guienne substituted when normandy had been exchanged for champagne and brie as it was arranged at peronne Charles of Burgundy approved the change, as he thought it assured him an obedient friend as neighbor. The second change, Guienne instead of Champagne and Brie, was quite a different thing. Guienne bordered the Bay of Biscay, far away from Burgundy. Naturally, Charles was not content. Then, too, it looked as though he had lost a useful friend as well as a neighbor, for the new Duke of Guienne was formally reconciled to his brother, and took oath that his fraternal devotion to his monarch should never again waver. Long before Charles was completely convinced that Louis was not going to maintain the humble attitude assumed at Peronne and Liege, 
he became very suspicious that intrigues were on foot against him. He hastened to Idan, where he entered into jealousy of his servants, says Comin. That he was assured that there were reasons for his apprehensions appears in an epistle circulated as an open letter to various cities, wherein he makes a detailed statement of the plots against his life by one Jean de Hausson and Baldwin, son of Duke Philippe. Sorry return was this from one recognized as bastard of Burgundy and brought up in the ducal household. Further, one Jean de Chassa, Charles' own chamberlain, had taken French leave of the duke's service and made his way to the king in his castle of Amboise, where he had been pleasantly received and promised rich reward when he had executed his damnable designs against our person. Messengers sent by this chassa to Baldwin in Charles's court at St. Omer were arrested as suspicious, and that circumstance frightened Baldwin and caused him to take to his heels, leaving his retinue, his horses, and his baggage behind. He dreaded lest he might be attainted and convicted of treason, and therefore he took shelter with the king. Saved from this conspiracy by the goodness and clemency of God, we inform you of the events, so that you may render thanks by public processions, solemn masses, sermons, and prayers, beseeching him devoutly and from the heart, that he will always guard and defend our person, our lands, signiores, and subjects from such plots. May God protect you, dear subjects. Written in our castle of Idan, December 13, 1470. Charles, Le Gros. It was not long before Charles had less reason to fear French subtleties. At an assembly of notables, convened at Tours at the end of 1470, Louis dropped the mask of friendship worn uneasily for just two years, and made an open brief of his grievances against the duke. His case was cited with a luxury of detail more or less authentic. The interview at Peron was a simple trap conceived by Balu and the Duke of Burgundy. The treaties of 1465 and 1468, both obtained by undue pressure, had not been respected by Charles, etc. The assembly was obedient to suggestion. It was a packed house. Even Colmine shows that it is not surprising that there was unanimity in the declaration that according to god and his conscience in all honour and justice the king was released from those treaties and the way was paved for an invasion into picardy as soon as possible charles's public accusations of plots against him did not go unanswered jehan de chassin promptly issued a rejoinder as charles soi-disant duke of burgundy has sent to diverse places letters signed by himself and his secretary, Jehan Le Gros, written at Edin, December 13th, falsely charging me with plotting against his life, with Baldwin, bastard of Burgundy, and Jean de Hausson, I, considering that it is matter touching my honor, feel bound to reply. By God, and by my soul, I declare that these charges against me made by Charles of Burgundy are false and disloyal lies. Baldwin, too, expressed righteous indignation at the slur on his character, but he remained in the French court, as did many others who had formerly served Charles. Meanwhile, the Earl of Warwick, having left his daughter in the hands of Margaret of Anjou, openly aided by Louis, sailed back to England in September, 
but there had been one further change of base of which the earl was still unconscious his elder son-in-law had not rejoiced in the warwick lancaster alliance it brought young prince edward to the fore and bereft the duke of clarence long ready to replace edward of york of any immediate prospects therefore he was inclined to accept offers of a reconciliation tendered him by king edward despite his secret change of heart clarence sailed with warwick and joined with him in the proclamations scattered over england declaring that the exiles were returning to set right and justice to their places and to reduce and redeem for ever the realm from its thraldom never a mention of either edward the fourth or henry the sixth perhaps it was as convenient to see which way the wind blew and to put in it name accordingly on landing however king henry the sixth was raised as a cry in nottinghamshire where edward lay not a word was heard for york there was no conflict edward felt that fate had turned against him and off he rode to lyme with a small following took ship and made for holland it was stormy pirates from the anseatic towns gave chase and glad was edward to take shelter at alkmaar where delacrutus governor of holland welcomed him in the name of the duke edward was quite destitute he had nothing with which to pay his fare across the channel but a gown lined with martin's fur and as for his train never so poor a company was seen eleven days later warwick was master of all england and official business was transacted in the name of henry the sixth limp and helpless on his throne as a sack of wool he was a mere shadow and pretense and what was done in his name was done without his will or knowledge charles of burgundy did not hasten to greet his unbidden guest he would rather have heard that his brother-in-law were dead but he bade grutus show him every courtesy and supply him with necessaries and five hundred crowns a month for luxuries after a time and perhaps informed by weather prophets that the lancastrian wind blowing over in england was but a fickle breeze he consented to forget his hereditary sympathies the same day that the duke received news of the king's arrival in holland i was come from calais to boulogne where the duke then lay ignorant of the event and of the king's flight the duke was first advised that he was dead which did not trouble him much for he loved the lancaster line far better than that of york besides he had with him the dukes of exeter and of somerset and divers others of king henry's faction by which means he thought himself assured of peace with the line of lancaster but he feared the earl of warwick neither knew he how to content him that was to come to him i mean king edward whose sister he had married and who was also brother-in-arms for the king wore the golden fleece and the duke the garter straightway then the duke sent me back to calais accompanied by a gentleman or two of this new faction of henry and gave me instructions how to deal with this new world urging me to go because it was important for him to be well served in the matter i went as far as tournheim a castle near to guineas and then dared not proceed because i found people fleeing for fear of the english who were devastating the country never before had i needed a safe conduct for the english are very honourable all this seemed very strange to me for i had never seen these mutations in the world Comin was uncertain as to what he had better do and wanted instructions the duke sent me a ring from his finger 
bidding me go forward with the promise that if I were taken prisoner, he would redeem me. New surprises met the envoy at Calais. None of the well-known faces were to be seen. Further, upon the gate of my lodgings and the very door of my chamber were a hundred white crosses and rhymes, signifying that the King of France and Earl of Warwick were one, all of which seemed strange to me. Well received was Comines, and entertained at dinner. It was told at table how within a quarter of an hour after the arrival of news from England, every man wore this livery, the ragged staff of Warwick. So speedy and sudden was the change. This is the first time that I ever knew how little stable are these mundane affairs. In all communications that passed between them and me, I repeated that King Edward was dead, of which fact I said I was well assured, notwithstanding that I knew the contrary, adding further that though it were not so, yet was the league between the Duke of Burgundy and the King and realm of England such that this accident could not infringe it. Whomever they would acknowledge as king, him would we recognize. Thus it was agreed that the league should remain firm and inviolate between us and the king and realm of England, save that for Edward we named Henry. Comine explains further that the wool trade was what made amity with England necessary to Flanders and Holland, which is the principal cause that moved the merchants to labor earnestly for peace. Charles made vague promises to his uninvited guest, declaring ostentatiously that his blood was Lancastrian. Nevertheless, he finally consented to an interview with him of York, in spite of the remonstrances of the Lancastrians, Somerset, and Exeter. The duke could not tell whom to please, and either party he feared to displease, but in the end, because sharp war was upon him face to face, he inclined to the English dukes accepted their promises against the Earl of Warwick, their ancient enemy. King Edward, who was on the spot and very ill at ease, was quieted by secret assurances that the duke was obliged to dissimulate. Seeing that he could not keep the king, but that he was bound to return to England, and fearing for diverse considerations altogether to discontent him, Charles pretended that he could not aid the king and forbade his subjects to enter his service. Privately, however, he gave him fifty thousand florins of St. Andrew's Cross, and had two or three ships fitted out at Ver in Zealand, a harbour where all nations were received. Besides this, he secretly hired fourteen well-appointed ships of the Easterlings, which promised to serve him till he landed in England, and for fifteen days after, great aid considering the times. King Edward departed out of Flanders in the year 1471, when the Duke of Burgundy went to wrest Amiens and St. Quentin back from the king. The said duke thought now, howsoever, the world went in England, he could not speed amiss because he had friends on both sides. Edward's adventures in England proved that he had not lost his hold there. Warwick's extraordinary brief success was but a flash in the pan. London opened her gates, and then the pitched battle at Barnet gave a final verdict between the rival houses which England accepted. This battle was fought on April 14th, when the thick fog and the like speech of the two bodies caused hopeless confusion. Many friends slew each other unwittingly, and among the slain was the indefatigable, energetic Warwick, who had hoped to play with his royal puppets. Only forty-four was he, 
and worthy of a better and more statesmanlike career. On that same day, Margaret of Anjou and her son landed at Weymouth, hearing of Warwick's death. They tried to reach Wales, but were intercepted and forced to fight at Tewkesbury. Here the young prince, too, met his death. To Edward's direct command is attributed the murder of the unfortunate Henry the Sixth in the Tower, which happened at about the same time. The desolated Margaret of Anjou lingered five years under restraint in England before she was ransomed by King Louis. Sir John Paston to Margaret Paston, written at London the Thursday in Eastern Week, 1471. God hath showed himself marvellously like him that made all, and can undo again where him lest. Charles of Burgundy could now pride himself on his foresight. His brother of the two orders was himself again. The very day on which this fight happened, says Cummings, the Duke of Burgundy being before Emmins received letters from the Duchess his wife, that the King of England was not at all satisfied with him, that he had given his aid grudgingly, and as if for very little cause he would have deserted him. To speak plainly, there never was great friendship between them afterwards. Yet the Duke of Burgundy seemed to be extremely pleased at this news, and published it everywhere. A transaction of his own of this time, the Duke did not publish. It was a procedure perhaps justified by these wonderful mutations in the world, which impressed Comines as strange and terrible. The Duke of Burgundy caused a legal document to be drawn up, attesting his own heirship to Henry the Sixth of England, and filed the same in the Abbey of St. Burton, with all due formality. If there came more mutations in the world, whose very existence was a new experience to Philippe de Comines, Charles was ready to interpose his own plank in the new structure. In the archives of the House of Croy, in the Chateau of Beaumont, rests this document, which was duly signed by Charles on November 3, 1471, in his own hand, so that greater faith be given to the statement that no one was truer heir to the Lancaster House than Charles of Burgundy. Two canons attested the instrument as notaries, and the witnesses were Ugonet, Umbercourt, and Bladet. It was expressly stipulated that if there were any delay in the Duke's entering upon his English inheritance, which devolved to him through his mother, a delay caused by motives of public utility of Christendom and of the House of Burgundy, this should not prejudice his rights or those of his successors. A mere deferring of assuring the titles, etc., brought no prejudice to his rights. His delay ended in his death, and Edward the Fourth never had to combat this claim of the brother-in-law who had helped him, though grudgingly, to regain his throne. End of English Affairs Recording by Cassiopeia Sparks